Crumb. Ready in Nebraska? Yeah. Ready in Kentucky? Yes. In 5, 4, 3, 2. Welcome back, everybody, to the Savage Cromcast, Season 3, Episode 9, The Footfalls Within. I'm Josh. I'm Luke. And I'm John. And when you put us together in a room with three microphones, or even in two states with three microphones, <laughs> we become a three-headed monster known as the Cromcast. Guys, welcome back. <laughs> We are here. Hello. We are here to talk about pulps <laughs> and drink beer. It's snowing in Nebraska today. No kidding. No kidding. Look wow. forward to that. Okay. Uh, it is very hot and humid in Kentucky. It's eighty degrees today. It'll yeah. snow tomorrow. It's been it's been kind of ridiculous. Oppressive. I don't like it. That's the weather. <laughs> <laughs> hey, John. What are you drinking? Uh, Wild Turkey One Hundred and One for me tonight. It's a little bit hot. A little bit hot. Luke, what do you got? I am drinking uh, Huda Pole Amber Lager straight from Cincinnati. America's Great Small Brewery. That's what that we got going. Luke shared it with me. I've had one before. They're delicious. We're going to maybe move over to some, some wild turkey after this if we feel like it. At, yeah. At, at the break. <laughs> Once we get to break. <laughs> yep. And so for those of you listening in this episode, we hope you've got something cold and delicious to uh, to drink. And we hope you've got your uh, copy of Solomon Kane. At least we hope that it has the footfalls within. This is it. one you can get on the, the public domain, too. Yeah, there are a lot of copies of it available on the web. We'll have to post one for sure. So before we jump into the story. It's time for the one thing. Wow, wow, wow. You took advantage. You took the cue. <laughs> John <laughs> What's your one thing Oh man my one thing uh, I told you I was picking between a few of them And I'm going to go with the final season Of one of my favorite TV shows Justified it is nearing its completion I think in the next week The final episode will air And it has been a really really cool season uh, A great wrap up to a great noir series That features characters Created by Elmore Leonard So if you're a fan of of Elmore, uh, God rest his soul. You should enjoy Justified quite a bit. It's a it's a pretty great black comedy show wrapped up in kind of a a marsh a U.S. martial noir story. And it takes place in Kentucky. It does take place in Lexington, Kentucky. I thought it was Harlan. Well, the marshal's office is in Lexington. All the action is basically in Harlan County. Yeah. Okay. Mar- it actually features a lot of Kentucky politics too. Like they they kind of speak about the cast uponness of people that live in counties like Harlan and the taken advantage uh, aspect of their nature. I've never watched of the people in the show have good Southern accents. And I've never, opposed to- I, I, I have not delved into it, but I'm, I'm sorry that I interrupted you, but I was about to say something about their accents. Go for it. They sound like they're from Alabama. One of them is from Alabama. Okay. They don't yeah. sound like they're from Kentucky. Well, 
It can't be perfect, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I can't be that picky. I think it's cool that it's set in Kentucky. I, I want to watch it, but I've... that was what attracted Kara and I to it. No, they don't know much about Kentucky, though. They always talk about Tate's Creek Bridge. <laughs> Tate's Creek Bridge. Yeah, which doesn't exist. It's That's the true. one road that doesn't have a bridge, right? That that is true. There is no bridge on Tate's Creek Road. Anyway, it's a good show. You should check it out if you haven't before out there in Cromcast Listener Land. What is your one thing, Josh? My one thing is a documentary that I watched on Netflix called Chic. And it is about the real life history of uh, the wrestler known as the Iron Chic. Uh, it's available for streaming on Netflix. Uh, I don't know if it's on Amazon or Hulu or other services, but if you're a Netflix subscriber and if you've ever been interested in professional wrestling at all, if you like sports documentaries, you should check out Sheik. It's the story of, of this guy who grew up in Iran. He became like a, the national Greco-Roman wrestling champion in Iran. He, he was the bodyguard of the Sheik or I'm, I'm sorry, the Shah, like the king of Iran. Uh, then he moved to America and started coaching the Olympic wrestling team and somehow got interested in, in like arena wrestling and became the, one of the greatest heel characters of all time. And a heel, for those of you not in the know, is the in ring, like pro professional wrestling lingo for a bad guy. And there is no greater bad guy than the Iron Sheik for my money. So check out the documentary Sheik. Luke, you got a one thing? Uh, yeah, so I'm I'm going to pick another documentary you can check out on Netflix also. Uh, have you guys ever seen the documentary Room 237? Yes. Yeah, so I just watched that uh, a few nights back, and it is uh, an IFC-produced documentary from 2012 that's basically about the various interpretations that people have of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, and... It, it's it's just far out. It's so so interesting. It's kind of about Kubrick as this this mad genius and all of the layers and layers and layers within his film. But I think it's also equally about the the, the sort of madness that people have and their obsession with cer certain certain things and how they they try to dissect every little nook and cranny. But if you have any interest in in film or Stanley Kubrick or horror movies or just really getting down to the roots of like what a story is, is, is sort of about, uh, this is, this is pretty awesome. So that was our one thing. We each brought one thing you left with three things and that's how one thing works. Right on. Let's get into a story. All right. So this is uh, a Solomon Kane tale that was published before wings in the night. And it is called The Footfalls Within. Luke, do you have the publication information? Yeah, I have here September 31, Weird Tales. Uh, I was just looking at the the cover for that issue. It seems like there's an awesome, awesome big cat with a with sort of a red cover. Uh, it's not it's not specifically like a, for showcasing the Howard story, I don't think. It's just another good classic pulpy sort of Weird Tales cover, though. That's cool. I, I have not been checking out the covers for these, but I'm assuming that Margaret Brundage probably didn't draw these, right? Uh, and this one doesn't look like it for sure. Uh, and I haven't, I haven't kept up on at least the last couple, but, but yeah, I think there's, I think there's other, or other artists that are hopping in on here. Yeah. And unless I'm wrong, I think Red Shadows definitely was a cover story 
for that issue of Weird Tales, um, but I'm not certain about the others. And so even though this story was published before Wings in the Night, I think we can sort of assume that it happens chronologically in the life of Solomon Kane after Wings in the Night. What did you guys think? It feels that way to me, especially with the Gianni illustrations. It looks like he's gone through battle with the, the Sky Beasts. Yeah, well, there's even mention of it too, right? Like at one point, this has this has nods towards uh, Hills of the Dead, Nagari, and I think it uses the term for the vampires. You're right. Yeah. So, so, so we have a placement. This is Solomon Kane as he's trekking yet even further east through Africa. Yeah. And presumably north also. Pr- presumably, yeah. So, John. Where do we open up? What's going on when we see our friend Solomon Cain? Like, like you said, he's in northeastern Africa, uh, into the place where it seems that Islam has kind of made its way into the continent of Africa. And there's been some cultural exchange there. And I feel like he's emerging from a jungly area into a more arid kind of region. Would you agree? That's how it struck me. Yeah, that's certainly how it, like a dry grassland, maybe even transitioning into the desert. Yeah, yeah. But we're at a place in Africa where it seems like the slave ships and the slave drivers shouldn't be coming into. This is not their normal territory, per se, at least the ones that that he's familiar with. But as he kind of comes into this open area, he comes upon a slave train going through this part of the country. Yeah, and even more to the point, as it first opens up, he's, he's sort of looking over and worrying and thinking about this this dead girl that lays at his foot, uh, it's really it's really bleak. I mean, this is just starting off on such a such a note here that there's this this slave girl that's dead. He sees birds of prey circling in the distance and deduces that that the slavers are trucking along, and and we know Solomon he's bound for vengeance. He ain't gonna have that. His dialogue here or monologue, I guess, is very biblical. And, you know, he says, the kites mark their trail. Destruction goeth before them and death followeth after. Woe unto ye, sons of iniquity, for the wrath of God is upon ye. That's awesome. Which kind of goes with where we were at in the end of of the last story, where Cain is trying to reaffirm his belief in the Judeo-Christian God. And this reads more like a man, like, finding his faith again, I guess. Yeah. Like just grasping at it even, even more tightly. That's kind of how it struck me too. Certainly. Yeah. That's cool. So he moves along and I think it's kind of on the periphery of the, of the forest, right? Like along the, along the, the, the byway here, the trail that the, the slavers are pushing their, their, uh, their captives along. Uh, and, and Solomon's keeping step and they don't, they don't know what's up. Right. And so here we get, racial profiling of a different flavor uh, than what we've seen really previously. Uh, these are Arabic Muslim slavers, and Solomon makes it quite clear that his, with his uh, European blood, like he is a bit haughty and has has poor feelings for these people. Yeah, he, he has some history with them. Yeah, right. It, he was enslaved by them himself and worked on one of their ships. Yeah, that's a... Weird and cool revelation, right? Like, I don't think we've heard anything about that yet, have we? No. I, yeah. It feels like he's he was on a crusade or something and got captured. Yeah. Yeah, and thinking about, uh, 
Well, in the Moon of Skulls, when he was going to rescue the the maiden in the the hills of of, of Africa, there, I recall like that that maiden was sort of passed around from slaver group to slaver group, and there may have been reference to, if not this group, at least this nationality of of slavers that she was handed off over a couple different paths before she ultimately sort of made her way into the the heart of the Congo. But yeah, you're right. Kane, Howard even says Kane is, uh, he's looking at these scars on these, uh, or thinking about these scars on his back, uh, scars made by Muslim whips in a Turkish galley and deeper still burned Kane's unquenchable hate. He doesn't feel any goodwill towards these people. He hates them immediately. And, I think that sort of informs the rash decision he makes in just a second. Yeah, right? yeah. It's it's absolutely a hatred for uh, like bondage and servitude here. Like it even transcends the the racial tinge that you get from this story. I mean, again, and we've seen this in other stories. There's differentiation in, in Solomon Kane's eyes about how various African cultures treat one another. Here we have uh, Africans enslaving other Africans. And Cain is is furious. Absolutely. And so he sees uh, the 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 slave train, I think is how Howard refers to this. A hundred or so people shackled together with the slavers sort of following after them. And he sees a girl fall on the ground, exhausted, dehydrated, and they whip her. And then another one of the slavers comes over with what sounds to me like some kind of fillet knife, right? As though he's going to skin her. And that's when Cain takes action, right, John? Yeah, he, he gets this like uh, red bloodlust. His eyes turn red and he just jumps out and shoots one of them in the brain, the guy with the knife. And then he's set upon and we get this uh, pretty descriptive and pretty awesome fight scene again. I feel like Solomon has had many of these very visceral and descriptive fight scenes that are under Howard's pen. And he gives it all, uh, as all as he can before they finally overpower him with their superior numbers and just dogpile on him. Yeah. And even at that, he grabs somebody by the throat, even with everybody yeah. on top of him. He's got somebody's neck and, and it takes a couple of people to pull his fingers away from, from that person's throat. And he's in a really desperate spot too, even before he jumps out and does this because it feels like he's down to his last pistol ball or two right and he's missing a dirk and he's only got his sword and the stave to really protect himself yeah that's true and his musket he hasn't had that for a while he broke right. it over top of one of those uh, vampires heads <laughs> so he's taken and we're introduced to the sheik i think his name is Hassim bin saeed that's a that's what i'm looking at here uh and he's he's a real sinister bastard Outright and and Howard uh, through Solomon Solomon Kane's voice like they, th he can hardly even talk with this guy his rage is just incontrollable he calls him a heathen jackal yeah and tells him his name Solomon Kane I like the I guess the Arabic sounding version of it Suleiman Kahani it's it's pretty neat sounding I like it and Kane's legend has even grown amongst this culture that it sounds like he's left far behind. They know of him because of his dealings with pirates and such from one of our earlier stories. It even seems like that they, they all know Solomon Cain's name and what he does. So Cain's taken in 
Uh, he is a slave. He's a, he, he's now a, a special slave. He's, he's, he's chained with his hands. He has his own entourage of guards that have to watch over him because he's such a badass. Uh, and they, they begin walking. And so as they're walking, we see a series of encounters that Kane has with, I guess, for lack of a better word, like this is a, uh, a Muslim wise man, right? That's within the troop here, sort of the consultant for the sheik. Yeah, he's an older guy, Yosef, the haji. He wants Almost to know. benevolent Nalanga. Yeah, yeah. Like maybe that's a good way to put it. He's, uh, he's more informed and he's really intrigued by, uh, Kane's stave, which he happened to pick up right. Otherwise, it was just going to sort of get tossed aside. Is that right? They took his pistols and everything because they, they looked pretty nice. But yeah, they threw the stick in the ditch. Yeah. They just looked at it and said, I don't want this cat stick. And Yusuf, he knows, he knows what's up or at least says, hmm, that looks old and antiquarian. I'll take that. Yeah. And he wants to know from Kane, what, what the heck is this and where'd you get it? And he seems to know Nalanga. Does, doesn't he have some passing recognition of Nalanga's name? Yeah. It says here that the old Arab muttered, uh, and nodded in his, uh, muttered in his beard and presently sent, uh, a black running to bid Hasim return. So, so he says, Hey, uh, you know, one of the workers here within the, the, the slave train, go get, go get the boss sheik. Like this, this sort of stirs him to think, Oh, this is really an artifact. It's a well-documented artifact in that there are legends about it being older than the world, older than Muhammad, older than everything, older than peace. Uh, older than Egypt. It's, it's very, very cool. The, the idea that, uh, there are passages written about this staff in various scholarly works, various books. And so it's at this point that I started thinking, I wonder how much Howard and Lovecraft were sort of interacting at this point, because, you know, legendary tomes, ancient tomes full of, uh, forbidden knowledge about the the true history of the world that's that's a very lovecraft it, i think that uh at this point howard was reading lovecraft and lovecraft was reading howard and they did sort of interact and talk about this story but i'm not certain we'll we'll get back to this in a little bit but i'm not certain what story it was that sort of inspired this but we kind of get the rundown here from yosef about this being older than the world uh muhammad and older than Muhammad, it was with Musa before, uh, and he did wonders before the Pharaoh. And then the Israelites fled from Egypt and bore it with them. For centuries, it was the scepter of Israel and Judah. And with it, Solomon ben Daud drove forth the conjurers and magicians, imprisoned the efforts and the evil genie. Look again in the hands of a Solomon, we find the ancient rod. And so, so this is, uh, Solomon of the Bible of, of, of that. This is, this is his staff of power. This is Moses, uh, his staff of power, the same staff that, you know, presumably was, was cast down at Pharaoh's feet and, and turned into a, to an asp. Uh, the, you know, that artifact. That's what is in, or was in Solomon Cain's hands that he'd been carrying and using to fight vampires, uh, and, <laughs> and all kinds of crazy adventures through the heart of Africa over the past few stories. Belongs in a museum. <laughs> it belongs in a museum. Yeah. And though this, this tying this artifact to not just Judeo Christian mythology, but also, 
uh, Islam and as we'll see in a little bit, Egyptian myth and adding a little dash of Lovecraft flavor makes the story really, really interesting, I think. Yeah, it gives it it gives it weight, right? As soon as you can tie in something within your story to to another recognizable uh like something something in the real world that's tangible where there's that deep history it you know to me it just sort of gives it that extra extra weight. Totally. Well, we were fascinated by it. The Sheik does not find this to be all that revelation uh revelatory or interesting. He just kind of says it didn't save the Israelites and it didn't save this guy, so what do I care for it? Your mockery will bring you to no good, Hasim. Someday you will meet a power that will not divide before your sword or fall to your bullets. I will keep the staff, and I warn you, abuse not the Frank. Dun, dun, dun. Yusuf knows what's up. Yeah, this thing is older than the world. It's it's not the I, I think I can't remember if it's this part or later. The they talk about the wood is completely unnatural, not like any kind of material that you would find on Earth in the 16th century. Right? Yeah, there's like a series of conversations here that play out sort of as they're walking, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. We're, the, the, all of this kind of wakes up in Cain this interest in the staff, something he hadn't really thought about before. He just carried it with him because his buddy Nalanga gave it to him. But now that the Joseph guys brought it up, the wood does seem really strange and the head isn't quite the original head. It seems like somebody sculpted on fast over it right that's that's that is probably the coolest thing to me like uh at this point in the story when when it when we get to the point where solomon is sort of reflecting about how he's you know now that he thinks about it every time he's looked at sort of the carving of the head it doesn't seem quite right it seems like it's uh a secondary uh carving on top of something that's much much older and who knows what the hell that was i really i really like that idea that this is you know, when I was reading this, I automatically thought of the uh, the idol in the story Call of Cthulhu that's like up on the pedestal uh, that the, the the heathens down in the swamps are worshiping. That it's it's some sort of ancient construct that has has this history that's been uh, appropriated in more recent times, but it's something that's just far older and far more mysterious, like that. That, to me, I found really compelling and, and interesting. It makes you feel all tingly to think about. Like maybe before it was some kind of Egyptian thing or, or Atlantean thing, and now it's right. an Egyptian. Yeah. And, and this is that cosmic horror, right? This is that element of like you feel dwarfed amongst the, amongst the cosmos, right? Like you are uh, uh, like a, a, an insect among the, the, larger, the larger world. And, and you know – when I say you, I mean us, like civilization. Like if th- if this thing is a consequence of, you know, of of Moses's time, but really it dates that. Like it just sort of takes all of that culture and squashes it underneath something much much larger. Yeah, this is something that pre long predates and was ancient when Moses was around, right? Like during that period of time. You guys mentioned Bast. I think John, you mentioned Bast. Who is Bast? Cat god. Cat god. Cat goddess. Meow, meow, meow. She was hey. an Egyptian uh, cat goddess. Uh, the Egyptians revered felines, right? Mm-hmm. And so, by definition, this this is a goddess that seems to work well in that pantheon. I don't really know much more about Bast, but I do know that, uh, thanks to Wikipedia, the source of all knowledge, um, 
that at some point Bast was represented as a lion, a lion goddess, and later made this transformation uh, into a cat goddess. So going from something that's very ferocious, very warlike in its aspect to something that is uh, a little uh, kitty, a little kitty. I I bet that the uh, Egyptians brought their little statues of Bast, saucers of milk as offerings. Probably. <laughs> so it would use the bathroom in the litter box and not on the carpet right next to it. Meow. <laughs> does, does Bast not have something to do with the afterlife or with death? Meow. Because isn't it always Bast and Anubis that are, that are kind of paired together with oh. the jars and the organs and stuff? Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. I don't know. Egyptologists that listen to the Chronicles. (laughs) Let us know. Let us know more about Bast and and how this the the fact that this staff now has a cat head, but you can tell it used to be something else. Does that relate to Bast formerly being a lioness and now being you know represented by cats? I you know I don't know. Nice. Or is this or is this part of the cosmic pantheon? Like is this a uh, like a uh, like a like a Lovecraft uh, god, <laughs> the cat god, you know. There you go. I mean, the cats of Ulthar, right? Like, yeah. Uh, cat in Lovecraft, Lovecraft's universe, the the Lovecraft verse, um, cats are not to be messed with, right? And uh, I don't know, maybe Clark Ashton Smith. Anybody have a cat god? Any of those dudes? Anybody? I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm still pretty new to Clark Ashton Smith. So, a cat is cool and is a. A good model for a god. And this seems to predate our Egyptian cat god here. Like whatever was under that original, like this this newer sort of superficial carving, it's old. Yeah. And it might not have even been a cat you know, or related to cats at all. It might have been some some horrible aspect of some other thing that you couldn't look at. Like lest a manatee. It, like a manatee. With 84 eyes <laughs> and lots of tusks. And tentacles. That would drive you mad just by staring into one of those 84 eyes, John. I don't like the sound of that. <laughs> and it doesn't like the you. The eyes are all around its head. So no matter where you're looking at it, it's looking at you. It I'll just look down. It sees you. <laughs> it knows you. At any rate, this thing is more ancient than Stonehenge and, and civilization itself. And so Kane is pondering these things, probably thinking about the cosmic manatee that used to be carved onto the top of his staff. And then what? They break for, for camp. Yeah, but is this a good place to camp? It doesn't feel very good. <laughs> yeah. In terms of feel, this isn't this isn't a positive vibe. This oh. is more on the negative side of energy. <laughs> on a on a scale of one to ten, ten being the best. Is this maybe a two? Yeah. I'll give it a two. Okay. If the ghost hunters were here, they would be making a lot of noise. Right Dude, now. this is totally scary, bro. <laughs> Did you hear that, bro? <laughs> so it's it's spooky. It has a bad vibe. Is there restlessness amongst everyone? I can't remember if that was something that was added in or if I'm just spicing that up right now thinking about it. I, I think that they are not feeling okay about where they are. Yusuf, Yusuf is definitely – he he feels something in the air. There's a charge. And they kind of set up shop. They send out some people to look for food and set up guards. And the guy they send out to get meat, he comes running back into camp looking like he's seen 12 ghosts and – well, is really terrified. Or he saw the cosmic manatee. Yes. 
<laughs> I like that they thought that maybe a lion was going to be chasing them. Yeah. And they were just ready for like, okay, there's about to be a lion busting out and it never came. So yeah. like, oh, this guy is a, a gibbering bad, madman now. Yeah. I, that's got to be some kind of a adrenaline high, right? Like lion, lion, lion. Oh, there was no lion. Um, before, before the guy goes out hunting, Yusuf and Kane have another little chat and Yusuf drops another little piece of knowledge into Kane's ear. And that is that this trail that they're walking, this road is probably, he thinks pretty close to the, the track that, uh, the great Suleiman came down when he drove the demons westward out of Asia and imprisoned them in strange prisons. And then the guy runs into the clearing. So we have, uh, Yusuf, he's, he's convincing the, the sheik, hey, we gotta get out of here, right? But the sheik says, oh, we'll leave, but we're gonna go check out what's up there, right? Like, <laughs> it's like, this to me is the, the forced plot point of the story, that he, he wants <laughs> to go explore, uh, when, you know, Ooh, this is the point in the horror story where you're like, don't split up the group. You're, you just leave the house, right? But they're going to continue. But it's a sweet mausoleum, Luke. I mean, it's just out here in the middle of nowhere. No, you I gotta see what that is. I agree. In my explorer fedora and bullwhip there at the camp, I would be like, let's go. We gotta, we gotta check that out. But if I was looking to be a money making man and continue on, if I was a slaver <laughs> that had, you know, <laughs> this, this horrible horde of people that I had been mistreating, I would be more concerned about heading north and east rather than checking out the mausoleum. But that's not me. And he's thinking, you know, a mausoleum way out here, it's got to be some rich person, some king or something. Yeah. Right. Well, that, that is true. So, so he's, he's still thinking about money. He's thinking about money. His okay, mind's on his money and his money's on his mind. I, I step back actually. Cause that, that now that I, I remember that, that, that really does justify things. This guy's a greedy, greedy SOB through and through. Yeah, well, but so. it's also partially like to stick it to Yusuf, right? To be I, like, listen, you and your mumbo jumbo can shut your trap. There's nothing weird going on out here. I guess that's true. These these are both good points. I back up from my previous statement. There, there's well, there's a clear reason for them to go check it out. <laughs> it's just that you, as the reader, you're like, come on, bad idea. Don't yes. go in that room. <laughs> Don't go in there. No. Yeah. But you know, you can't really feel bad for Hasim and the things that might happen to him here, right? You know? Oh, no. And and really either Yusuf, too. Like, I don't know how you guys felt about him the whole way. He's still a bad, bad person, I guess. And I got, I, I took from this that he was not really trying to be Solomon Kane's friend. He's just trying to get more information about the staff. Like, he wants to know more. You know, it, that's really what's driving these conversations. Yeah, he says something like, I want to be your friend, and then immediately following saying that gets everybody around him and like, this guy's got this cool stick that we're going to take from him. Right. Like, you know, he, he rushed to the leader of the, the slavers, Hasim, and said, hey, check out this staff. Look what it is. I found out. So we have Yusuf, the sheik. The sheik says, oh, yeah, we're going to go check it out. So they just get the whole slave train up, right? And they all leave out as one. Towards the mausoleum. And so they passed through the jungle until they came to a strange clearing among the giant trees. Strange because nothing grew there. The trees ringed it in a disquieting, symmetrical manner, and no lichen or moss grew on the earth, which seemed to have been blasted and blighted in a strange fashion. And in the midst of the glade stood the mausoleum, a great brooding mass of stone it was, pregnant with ancient evil, dead 
with the death of a hundred centuries, it seemed. Yet Cain was aware that the air pulsed about it, as with the slow, unhuman breathing of some gigantic, invisible monster. And so, yes, they've made it to the mausoleum. It is in a scary clearing. It's made of stone that you wouldn't find around this part of Africa. And so at this point, like the way the, the reveal plays out here, I mean, this is broad uh, strokes of the paintbrush and like the final the final chapter of Call of Cthulhu. Right? Yes. As far as the reveal here, we have differences. The sheik says, I'm going to get in that mausoleum. So he pulls up one of his... Uh, one of his slaves or one of the workers that has this massive hammer and just puts him to, to hammering on the door. Uh, but once, once that gives, there's the fetid odor that overpowers him. And then the, the horror that sort of spills out. It's all in the vein of that, that Call of Cthulhu story, which was, which was published years before this at this point. Yeah. It's, it's of a kind for sure. As they're breaking down the door, Kane hears footfalls from within. There's something in there. Yeah. I just heard a footfall. And so he begs Hasim, don't open the door. Hasim is is adamant, no, we're gonna get in there, you're crazy. There's there's uh there's riches to be had and I'm gonna get my riches. And then like Luke said, they open the door, they bust it down, and then what comes out at them? The red death. It's a color and it's a shape. Which I also thought was, was, uh, you know, things that we've seen. I don't know when the color out of space is actually, was actually published. I do know that, uh, Call of Cthulhu came out in like 26 or 28, and this is in 31. So this is after, like sometime after. Uh, but that sort of struck me like the setting, the, uh, the blasted landscape. We have this, this amorphous thing, this, this giant red tide that sort of washes over the sheik, right? Roll Tide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it grabs the Sheik and it, it, even though it's a cloud, it crushes him and melts him. He, he's dropped to the ground and he's already decomposing. This is like an acid cloud of doom. Yeah, he's like the blob. Yeah, I think, sort of. I think that's, I, the, you know, that's what, that's what I imagine. And, and the, the ideas of like a Lovecraft Shoggoth or something like the, was it the Dunwich Horror? Actually, I was reading on one of the forums, people talking about this, and someone made the, the comparison that this was more like Wilbur Waitley's brother in the Dunwich Horror than a Shoggoth, uh, since it's kind of, uh, it's less detectable. I don't know. I don't know. It, this is of that type, though. Like, as you said, Josh, before, like, this is painting in those broad brush strokes. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so Dunwich Horror was published in 1929. Okay. Okay. And so, you know, it, it, it's very conceivable that Howard read Dunwich Horror and other Lovecraft tales, right? And was uh, influenced by them. But Lovecraft wasn't the only guy on the block who was using the you know, giant, invisible, or opaque, formless monster. Okay. Did um, Clark Ashton Smith do that? Definitely did. Yeah. Um, and so there's a, a story, one of the few CAS stories I've read called The Tale of Satampra Zeros. And I think it's in his Hyperborean cycle. Uh, these these two guys, uh, one Satomprazeros and someone else I can't remember, are exploring these ruins, this this temple within the jungle, and they disturb uh, Sathagwa. I think it's the first appearance of 
of Sathagwa. And gotcha. so, uh, they see this liquid in this fountain in the tomb and they, uh, it turns out they've disturbed and awakened Sathagwa, who is a sort of a formless, very liquidy, very, you know, blob mm. sort of monster. That's very much like this story. It is very much like this story. Now, I don't know when that one was published. I, I didn't look it up. But definitely there was, uh, I guess, there were several stories in Weird Tales around this time that featured this type of very liquidy, sort of like the blob kind of monster. And it's a terrifying monster that sends everybody running into the jungle, except for Solomon Cain, right? That's right. Yeah. Uh, I think Yusuf throws down the staff. Cain somehow just like Hulk busts his bonds, picks up the staff, and he kind of knows what he has to do. He's got to poke it with the stick. (laughs) Poke it with pointy end. Yes. Maybe defeat it that way. And that's what happens. You know, he starts thinking about the staff. He puts a lot of faith into the staff, the staff that Moses used, the staff of Solomon, you know, the staff of his namesake. He starts thinking about why would Solomon, the biblical Solomon, have just captured this monster and imprisoned it rather than killing it? That's a good question. That is a good question. Very irresponsible (laughs) not have labeled the container that holds this monster. It does have ancient Hebrew letters on it that they can't read. Oh, and so yeah, and so I think it would be very similar to us trying to read like really old, like old English, right? Yeah, that's how I took it. And this also made me think of a previous story too, where we have uh, the harpies being driven southward by Jason and the Argonauts, and so. Like, this is the evil that's still remaining on this African landscape. Oh, that's cool. Uh, I don't, I mean, I don't know if that's an intention or if Howard's trying to place this in the, within the realm of, of, of King Solomon, but, but that's something to think about. Well, it's mythical characters taking these monsters and sort of driving them from Europe into the frontier that is Africa, right? Yeah. At least from the standpoint of Europeans. It's, it's, an unexplored wilderness, even though we know, you know, there, there are people and civilizations and kingdoms and whatnot, but, uh, you can sort of see how that theme is sort of playing out in wings and the night and the footfalls within some mythological figure is driving the monsters from places that are quote, quote, civilized into places that are quote, quote, barbaric or, or more wild. Yeah. Yeah. And, and not just barbaric, but also considered, even in this time, the cradle or like the bottom rung of civilization and humanity, right? Like this is where history started. Oh, right. That's where monsters belong, I guess, according to some European people. I, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Uh, just as a, as a quick side note here, I looked up the publication of the tale of Satan Prezaros. So that came out a month after this story in Weird Tales. So that came out in Weird Tales, November of 31. Well, actually two months. And so the the current story we're covering came out in September of 31. So uh, it says, at least according to Wikipedia, that uh, Clark Ashton Smith's story was written in 29. So maybe he wrote it. I mean, there was clearly a lull between then and when it was published. But in terms of what came out first, like these two stories are within two months. This is clearly a... uh, a thing, a yeah. zeitgeist, uh, a trope. Yeah, it was. It must have been popular. Like people must have been writing in saying, "Hey, I really dug that story with that scary monster." You <laughs> it know, freaked me out, man. It freaked me out. It wasn't a ghost. It wasn't a vampire. It wasn't some mythological like you know thing. It was some unspeakable evil. Yeah, and and this thing is, John. You were saying it sort of crushes and starts decomposing the the sheik all at once, right? Like just sort of. Yeah, like, it eats him. 
Yeah. Like melts him. Everybody runs, except for Kane. He whips it with the stave. That kills it, right? Yeah. One poke, and that it falls down dead with a mighty roar. And but there's this question of why didn't this work in the past? And his idea is that human magic wasn't strong enough to kill it before, but now through the ages has become more powerful to, to kill whatever this is. I really like the paragraph on page 344, the first full paragraph. And Solomon Cain shuddered, for he had looked on life that was not life as he knew it, and had dealt and witnessed death that was not death as he knew it. Again, the realization swept over him, as it had in the dust-haunted halls of Atlantean Nagari, as it had in the abhorrent hills of the dead, as it had in Akana, that human life was but one of a myriad of forms of existence, and worlds existed within worlds, and that there were more than one plane of existence. Pretty cool stuff. That's very Lovecrafty. Yeah, Lovecraftian, but very... It's even older than... It's like a dark romanticism from the... The early Americas, almost, right? Uh, we're talking Ambrose Bierce and the predecessors of Nathaniel Hawthorne and Poe and those kinds of guys. That's, that's some heavy stuff there. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's definitely in the vein of cosmic horror because this is Kane realizing that everything he knows about history, about religion, about the creation of man and the descent of humans and this and that, it's completely wrong. And, and, it, and it's bit biological, wouldn't you say? Yeah. This realization that, that we, not only are we only one form of animal or that we're just a higher form of animals. I think he said that in the last story, but that maybe that means there's even more to existence than we can fathom. Yeah. It's, it's a very interesting way of putting it. It's, it's super cool. And so Kane uses the staff to uh, sort of push the monster back into the tomb and lock it just in case turns and, uh, gives the, the, the weapons of the former slavers to the slaves and freeze them and basically says next time someone comes after you, you either stay free and kill them or you die in your village. Don't let this happen to you again. That's a very kind of <laughs> 1930s way of looking at it, right? I, I guess at the same time, I don't know, maybe it makes me a bad person, but I like that. I like that notion. I like that Cain is saying, look, there is nothing worse than this. Fight, yeah. fight, and fight. And you probably, maybe you fought, maybe you didn't, but this time you must. I, I looked I at it. You're saying. I looked at it as less condescending and more, you guys, more yeah. tough guy. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, like a very short Solomon Kane pump up speech. His, his credo. Yeah. Yeah. Fight or die. And they call him master and ask him to return with them. You could, you could be our king. The last time Kane tried that, it didn't work out so good. Right. And so he goes eastward, he says. And he shoulders the staff and heads out. You can hear the music trail away in the background. Yeah, yeah. All right. So what did you guys what did you guys think, John? Thoughts? <laughs> yeah, I dug it. I really dug this story. I think that it's maybe now my new favorite. I think my previous favorite had been the one with the pirates, the blue flame of vengeance. But I, I feel that this story is is very interesting and very strong. And almost a precursor to a lot of what we get with Conan. Uh, it felt like the most Conan-y story of the Solomon Kane verse that we have read so far. The monster, all that stuff. It just felt very Conan the Barbarian-esque, I guess. And I, I, I was very moved by the story. I dug it a lot. How about you, Josh? I tend to agree. I like this one a lot. I don't know. 
here's the thing. I enjoyed talking about wings in the night. I don't know how much I like it. I enjoy it. I think this is a more fun story in a way. It's, it's more pulpy and adventurous, whereas wings in the night was more horrific and, and bleak and had a, a very sort of fatalistic worldview. This one's fatalistic in a way, but it's, it's fatalistic in the same way that Conan is, you know, the wings in the night was sort of a, no matter what you do, something's going to eat you and you're going to die. This one was, yes, we're all maggots. We're, we're the maggots that are in charge of the earth right now. And someday we might not be, but you know, for now fight or die in your village, right? Like, yeah, I, I guess playing off of that a little bit, I think one of the reasons I thought it was more Conan than any of the other ones is it was less about vengeance and more about freedom. Even in the face of overwhelming odds and the fact that we're maggots in the universe, freedom is essential and key to Cain. And he spreads the, the word about freedom to these people that he encounters. And Conan is all about freedom. So I guess that's why they, they rang together for me. Luke. Yeah. I, I love the hell out of this story. This is, this is definitely going to shake out to be one of my, one of my favorites. I think it's a good, concise, story and i really like all of the 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 cosmic horror elements the unknown knowledge it, it delves into that i think it's all really good and john what you're mentioning about it being more about freedom than vengeance i think that's true i like the way that we see solomon kane interacting with the african people in this story uh i think it's interesting in that it overtly tackles like Solomon Kane as, as a liberator. He's not necessarily like a, like a white savior type character. He's just someone that's pissed off at the idea of slavery. Now, you know, it still has some unsavory elements as far as how it's dealing with the various cultures here. But I like at least the, the way that, that Solomon Kane is sort of dealing with people there at the end of the story, like you guys are talking about. So yeah, I, I think it's, a good, tight, compartmentalized, well-plotted story, well-written, and and just has really cool hooks that we're getting the secret history of the staff. I mean, that's that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I like that uh, the history of the staff and that we get to learn more about Solomon and Solomon and the connections between the two. Yeah, I mean, the story might even be as rich, even if you, even if this was the first time that Solomon had his staff with him even if we hadn't seen it in previous stories because honestly there's it's not like the staff has done great magical things uh like all the way through i mean it it has but at the same time like on the level of what's described here it's not really been this uh this driver of of history you know and that's that's kind of what's revealed here so i think you could even if this was the first time the staff really popped up in, in Howard's stories, it would still be a damn good story. But the fact that it's something we have seen recur over a past, uh, over the past few, uh, different, different things yeah. that we've read gives it, you know, even more weight. I, I think it's interesting to pair it with the last story where it was useless, right? It was the most pointless thing in his arsenal. It couldn't do anything against the Akani, but in this story, it's essential. And the fact that we've talked about that they were published backwards in terms of chronological history with with Kane, I find that interesting that we, that we see that here. I have two thoughts about the staff. One is that as we move along this journey with Solomon Kane, we see his faith sort of begin to erode. I think the staff represents 
that, you know, in Wings in the Night, like you said, John, Cain's faith was useless. And he kept praying to God for answers, for help, and no answers came and no help came. And the staff couldn't really do anything. And now Cain has sort of embraced this deep history, the the real history of the world. He's embraced the staff. And right now, the staff is his only weapon. He doesn't have his guns. He doesn't have – maybe he still has his sword. I can't remember if he picks it up there at the end of the story or not. But I, I feel like he shoulders the staff, it says, and then moves along. That seems right. I, I like that. The other thought that I had about it is that, you know, I, I started thinking of it over the last few stories – Sort of like the ring in The Lord of the Rings, Sauron's ring. You could do a whole lot of stuff with it if you knew how to do it, if you knew how it worked. But if you don't know how it works, all it does is make you invisible. Mm -hmm. And so if Cain understood the mystic arts, he might be able to get it to do some of these really cool things like Moses and Solomon and Nalanga can make it do. But he doesn't know how. He just doesn't know how. So I, I I think that the staff is a, a cool trope, and I agree with you. You know, you don't have to have this history of the staff and Solomon Cain, like this journey. But I think looking at it holistically is pretty neat because the staff is there when Cain starts seeing and believing this deeper history and, and this magical way that the world works. Does that make sense? Yeah. If I ever write a uh, Doctor Strange story, I'm going to put this this staff in. Yeah, it. I mean, this is something that's ripe for turning up, like in the pages of Hellboy or something. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like yeah. you could see, you could see this thing popping up in your own little RPG that you're playing. Like this is this is prime. I was just thinking that. Yeah, this would be a cool, uh, not not just a magic item to give somebody, but the object of their quest. It'd be pretty cool. Yeah, a pulp, a pulp RPG where. Uh, you're racing against the Nazis to get the, the Staff of Solomon. Yeah. They need it because they're going to wreck the world. But you got to get it first. Yeah. mein Staffer. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I think we can safely say that we all enjoyed this story. Yeah, this was fun. Yeah, I liked it a lot too. And we hope that you guys out there did as well. What else do we have? I This story prompted me to do a lot of reading into the history of King Solomon and I found out that, that guy was way more metal than I guess I had ever assumed <laughs> he was. Uh, he was not only king of, of the Israelites for a time and the son of David, but according to some Jewish apocrypha and some of the more, I guess you could call them fantastical tales of the Bible, he was a very powerful sorcerer almost. He had a ring that had a, a sign on it, the sign of Solomon, that helped him to command demons or genies, depending on which faith you're a member of. And he used these demons and genies to construct the Temple of Solomon, which we're all very familiar with as the most famous aspect of his legacy. And that's how he got it built so quickly, even though I guess he died before its completion. And they the, the demons are the ones that discovered he had died. Uh, so he was in control of all of them. He could control the wind because he asked God politely, uh, for some horses, and I guess God gave him the wind. I didn't quite understand the story and its completion, but he could control the wind, and he knew the inner workings of the heart. Apparently, he knew why people felt the way they did about things, because he had a very frank conversation with God about it. He just seems like a very interesting, I don't want to say character necessarily, because that might be 
irresponsible and kind of irreverent of faith, but it seems like there are a lot of interesting adventures about King Solomon that could pop up as part of Solomon Kane's universe. And I, I hope that we see some more exploration of that. Cool. He, he fought a two faced man from hell that some demons brought up. He had a magic carpet. He was a cool guy. <laughs> that is cool. I have the, uh, Solomon Kane, um, dark horse comic book collection, saga of Solomon Kane. And on page 217, there's an adaptation of the footfalls within. The script is by Don Glutt. The art is by Will Munio and Steve Gahn. It's a straightforward adaptation, almost word for word. You know, the art is is pretty good. It's not my favorite of the comic adaptations within that collection, but, you know, it's it's still really good. I forgot all about the comics again. What? You're the comics guy. Yeah, I, I went a different direction. <laughs> <laughs> You're the, the Solomon scholar. Um <laughs> So anyway, if you haven't picked up your copy of the Saga of Solomon Cain, uh, over 20 classic stories, do yourself a favor and grab it. Treat yourself. What's next, Luke? At this point, that end of the road of vengeance is in sight. We have an episode where we'll be covering the, the remaining story fragments, an episode where we'll be covering the, the remaining poems, and that movie that came out a few years back. That's what we have in store as we as we close things out. But at least... Uh, from what I know, this is, this is the last complete Solomon Kane story that was penned by Howard. So, so we've covered all of the major works. At this point, we're back in cleanup. Yep. We're, we're, uh, in the apocrypha of Solomon Kane at this point, right? Yeah. We'll have to figure out how to do the poems episode in iambic pentameter. We got that. We can do that. That's easy. <laughs> we'll practice once and then let it rip. Okay. <laughs> all right. Anything else you guys? No. All right. Hope you enjoyed the story, everybody. Yeah, we hope you enjoyed it. If you would like to send us an email, and we we would love to hear from you, uh, you can do so by sending an email to thecromcast at gmail.com. We're on the web, http colon forward slash forward slash thecromcast.blogspot.com. We are on Twitter, twitter.com slash thecromcast, facebook.com slash thecromcast. Like us. We like you. And you can even call us, 859-429-CROM. And like the guys said, we hope you enjoyed the story. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. We hope you're having a good day. We hope you enjoyed your drink. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>